Hey everyone, hope you guys are doing well. Um, my name's Sky, my pronouns are he, him, and I really wanted to be a part of this uh, podcast as a trans man because I'm really passionate about intersectionality. I admire both of you a whole lot, um, and I think we should get started. Uh, what is Women's History Month? Why is it important, and what does it matter? Why does it matter? Uh, I will just say that I have to be honest that I still have some trouble with reconciling Women's History Month in the spirit of feminism and my own awareness of the exclusionary practices of feminism. And so it's like, I almost get a little like heart palpitation because I know the spirit in which it began and in which that was a way to give voice to something that had been silenced. And like every social movement, it came out of a cer certain time and in a certain place. And some of those issues we have a different perspective on now. And although I, as a young feminist and a young lesbian, kind of in the late 1980s, really identified with something like a women's movement, um, the same feminist queer theorist part of me also now has trouble aligning with something that specifies on the basis of gender a certain group of people. And so I understand that there's a difference between what, what the intention was and how I experience it now. And it is one of those interpersonal struggles to be like, Yes, yeah, yeah, totally get it, totally get it, totally get it. I'm in a slightly different place now. And, and yeah, that's a part of, I guess that's a part of social progress. But so I have this like excited ambivalence and hope for the future. Are, are you speaking about, um, just to clarify for our listeners and for myself, um, you're speaking about the trans exclusionary feminist movement, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And, yeah, I think it's yeah. and just white feminism and middle yeah. class feminism and yep. Americanism and that. So yeah. there's actually a lot of dimensions of exclusion. Oh, and and so I understand that, you know, how I understood like the way in which it was speaking truth to power, I still understand that. That was a part of my introduction to social justice politics. Now, with a little more history, looking back on it, I'm like, wow, okay. Yeah, there's a lot of social movements that move ahead by setting aside certain issues. And, you know, the civil rights movement said, women, uh, I'm not sure about that. Uh, the women's movement is like, oh, racism, well, LGBTQ, ah, gender, wait, what? And so this is something that has happened in the history of all social justice movements. So I can get that and I can... But I still am like, oh, so it's we just, can do better. We can yeah. do better. And it's also trying to be accountable as an activist that mm -hmm. maybe what seduced me into my activism was I wasn't ready yet to tear down those deeper structures. Maybe mm -hmm. I had to start small and reach a point now where I can be like, well, that was problematic. And that's a little shameful for me to sort of think about for myself. Like, did I really need to make it so easy? Yeah. Yeah. These are the things you think about when you're an activist and you're a lesbian and you're a queer and you're 50. You think, what have I done? 
sky. We've talked about this a ton of times in all of the classes we've taken together, but it really comes down to representation, right? When we think Mm -hmm. about um, the vital role of women in American history, there always tends to be too much of a focus on one particular body of women or one particular yeah. gender identity or sexuality at the, the exclusion of others. And we might talk about this a little later, um, but I remember being in my first women's and gender studies class in undergrad. It was a mm-hmm. feminist philosophy course. And we had one week in that course dedicated to feminist women of color and we read one reading by Bell Hooks and one reading by Gloria Anzaldúa. And as a Latina or a Mexican-American woman myself, and as someone who identifies as pansexual when that word wasn't even really a thing back in the day, mm-hmm. I remember reading Gloria Anzaldúa's work and thinking, where has she been my entire life, right? A queer, brown, um, feminist philosopher and theorist from Texas. But yet we only get one day to focus on women of color or queer yeah. women in an entire semester. And I mean, granted, we've come a long way, right? But I always think about which voices and which stories are spotlighted and heard at the expense of others. And I thought it it would be interesting for us to think about this too, as I was researching like different discourses or dialogues that we have currently on Women's History Month. And the National Women's History Alliance designates a yearly theme for Women's History Month. And the theme this year is women providing healing and promoting hope. And I thought that was um, particularly poignant here, particularly in the midst of um, anti-transgender legislation that we're seeing across the country, especially in my home state of Texas, and thinking about the way in which COVID-19 has radicalized all of our embodied experiences. So when we think about women's contributions to our country and the ones that the contributions we know about and the ones we don't know about, right? If we're thinking about providing healing and promoting hope, we can also think about where we can go from here, maybe mm-hmm. in that like line of thinking. Yeah, I think it's important to pay homage to the past, but also also amplify different voices so that we can all learn from each other. Um, shameless plug, we're doing a re- media representation panel uh, this week at, with Leah, actually, um, at Provo in Circle. Not sure if you guys are going to hear this by then, but if you want to check it out, I think it'll be online. Um, love, I actually facilitated the Q BIPOC Friendship Circle support group at In Circle, which is something I'm really proud of. Uh, also, um, just like in general, like I think there's so much to learn from each other that we can learn from each other, not just as women as people, do you know what I mean? Like, we don't have to um, block out one person's contributions to make room for the rest of them. So I think that's something we should definitely keep in mind as a society moving forward. Um, what, moving on, um, what got, what do you, who's a queer person? Sorry, I'm like stubborn here, but um, who is a queer person from women's history that everyone should know about? Who do you guys think? Audre Lorde. I actually um, don't know who that is. I feel bad. So, but. oh, it's okay. Then I feel even better. You know, I, I, I talk about her all the time to my undergrads because I realized that this is one of those things. Our history does get lost. And I don't blame anyone for because every year there's more, right? The amount of queer history that I had to internalize at 20 was much less than what you would have 
extrovert. So yeah. there's a lot. It's like Google. There's like the clear, yeah. There should be like and a, they don't usually cover it in public schools. Even if you come from a liberal, liberal, quote unquote, liberal state like California, where I came from, we learned about Harvey Milk. Like I was about to say Harvey Milk, and that was it. Not even. Not even. I'm from Southern California, so we like basically touched like he was mentioned in our textbook and that was it so we're in Southern California because I'm from the Los Feliz area of Hollywood oh cool I'm from um like West LA near Century City grow up next to each other so anyway Audre yeah. Lord was a black lesbian cancer survivor feminist activist and she, in many ways, before Kimberly Crenshaw began to talk about it academically, she was giving voice through her poetry and through her writing, she was giving voice to what we now call intersectionality. Mm -hmm. And which at the time we were trying to find a way to understand how, how different stigmas don't just add, they explode in a way that creates a new phenomenon. And she had a way of articulating that. That was amazing. And she's also very well known for a phrase that I literally was just talking to my students about three weeks ago. The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. In other words, well, whatever uh, strategies, practices you have learned, and I filter this through academia, the privileges, the practices that I have inherited that are from the master, they're from the white supremacist. Okay, and maybe I've stayed in that system and I have gained the amount of power and privilege that's it's willing to dole out if you follow the rules. And then I like to tell myself that I'm going to use those tools against the master, against mm -hmm. the system that has oppressed all of my brothers and sisters. And mm -hmm. that is certainly, I mean, I've committed to that goal. I'm still planning to do that. I think Audre it's a noble intention, yeah. Although Audre Lord reminds us, be careful. Mm -hmm. Be careful about what you're doing. Is it possible that there is no way that you can inherit those tools, use them, and not end up reproducing some of those failures? Is it possible? Yeah. And I don't have a uh, yes or no answer to that. But that question rings in my head like a bell. And I always try to question, you know, what are the limitations of the master's tools? Mm -hmm. And and what do I what am I doing and what do I think I'm doing? And that has stayed with me forever. Yeah, I think to go along with what you said, I think it's easy to say that we're gonna protest peacefully like MLK did, but before he passed away, for example, in the civil rights movement, he acknowledged that the reason they made so much progress progress was because of the Black Panthers and Malcolm X. Mm -hmm. I think, and in terms of Stonewall too, like we built this, this movement, this, this, these rights on the backs of queer BIPOC people, um, especially trans women, and we don't pay homage to that a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's important to note that in order to create a new, create the we like create a new system, you got to break the wheel. Sometimes you got to set fire to it. Do you know what I mean? Like you can't mm -hmm. just expect that you're going to go in there and sing Kumbaya and everything's going to work out. You know, sometimes you do have to break the wheel. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something we should draw attention to as 
as uh, social justice activists and as people in general. Agreed. Yeah, Audre Lord is a powerhouse. So for those of you who want to Google her, her first name is spelled A-U-D-R-E. Look her up, love her work, and hopefully she'll be as meaningful for you all as she has been for both Lisa and myself. Probably unsurprisingly, my queer person from women's history that everyone should know about is Gloria Anzaldúa. And for me, when I was younger, um, I discovered Audre Lorde around the same time I discovered Gloria Anzaldúa and the, the queerness and the intersectionality from both of them, even though I didn't have those words when I was younger, right, um, helped make my younger years much more bearable. So Gloria Anzaldúa is a Chicana feminist. She's a queer feminist, philosopher. Um, she's a writer. She's an artist. She's, she's incredible. She was born and raised in Texas at the U.S.-Mexico border in the literal borderlands, which is near and dear to my heart because I'm also from Texas. I was born and raised in Houston, but my family is from the border as well. And mm -hmm. she wrote so much about identity and like nepantla and liminality, or rather concepts that help us understand the constantly shifting um, nature of our existence, right? So when we think about borders, it doesn't just have to be a physical border in between cities or states. We can think about borders that we face as queer individuals in Utah or in our home states. Um, in our schools, in our families, constantly trying to navigate relationships as we navigate our own identities, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember when I first read her book, Borderlands, La Frontera, The New Mestiza, it's a mixture of a little bit of academic writing, but there's also artwork and prose and poetry. And if you identify as Latina or X or E, uh, Gloria Anzaldúa could potentially speak to you in really powerful ways, but even if you don't identify that way ethnically, um, you might still find some connections with Gloria Anzaldúa, particularly as she talks about her body, her failing health, um, and really a lot of topics that we can relate to nowadays as well. She's been super foundational for me in many ways. Mm -hmm. And I especially appreciate your comments about the, the work that she's done about the borders of the body which is where I find her work like almost ahead of its time. It's very prescient when, you know, now the work that we're now doing about uh, gender diversity and the experience of being in your body and around and what are those borders and inside and outside the mind and the spirit, it's all about borderlands and it's all about where you feel home and you read her writing now and it's like, oh my God, she was given to us early as a, a beacon. Hey, hey, pay attention, pay attention to this. And it's amazing. That's really the mark of an artist that endures is that now we read it, we see even more as, as, the, as culture and social justice gives us more borders to think about She's, she was right all along. Yeah, she was a, she was a huge revolutionary, right? I mean, mm -hmm. she died in the early 2000s of complications from diabetes, and she was young. And those of us who are activists and organizers and in the academy, 
all of us, I think, share that emotional labor and the love that we give and we experience when um, we literally put our bodies on the lines for topics and communities we're passionate about, right? Mm -hmm. So to Lisa's point about how she was given to us and then taken too soon, unfortunately, like I think about how Gloria Anzaldúa wrote in English, Spanish, and Spanglish when presses in the 1970s were like, you are not allowed to do that. And guess what? She did it anyways. And she pushed back on um, patriarchal, misogynistic cultural norms that told her she was less than because she was a lesbian, right? Because she privileged her partnerships both intimately and romantically with women above others. Like what she was doing during that time frame so ahead of its time and it's still so relevant even now that we're in the 2020s you know sky i don't know if you remember when we talked about this in media ethics um and it was specifically the chapter on art and entertainment right and i remember um there were a lot of conversations going on that week about some of our own favorite musicians right going back to lisa's point as well um and some of y'all know that I'm really into like punk, pop punk, metal oh, yeah. and hardcore music, which has a really cool like countercultural, subcultural, like down with the man ethos at the same yeah, yeah. time that it has a problematic history with racism and sexism and violence and everything else. And mm -hmm. I remember several years ago finding out about how some of the lead singers of my favorite bands um were allegations started coming out about how they had mm. assaulted women in the past several mm. years and all of the conversation circled around that one particular question just because the lead singer might have done xyz does that mean we have to throw out the entire band mm. especially when the band meant so much for so many individuals from a um a trauma survival perspective. Other marginalized groups. Exactly, yeah. right? And um, that's just what came to mind when I was thinking about this because, you know, how do we reconcile what these bands or performers or artists might have meant to us at one time and might still now relatively compared with what they did or allegations that have come out against them about what they might have done, mm -hmm. right? It's, a, it's yeah. a sticky subject for sure. You know, every time I... I feel like I have this conversation with myself over and over again, and I have to keep reminding myself. You know, I, I almost feel like every time I spend some time thinking about exactly this, like, oh my God, I, you know, my, your heroes are, you know, this form of oppression doesn't mean that you are empathic over here. Like, yeah, these are complex things that all exist, that every time I spend even 10 minutes thinking about that, I know that that's what the man actually wants. It's mm -hmm. for me to spend that 10 minutes in self-conflict instead of realizing that they are laughing. Every time oppressed groups struggle with trying to work this out, that horizontal judgment, that horizontal oppression saps our energy. And, and that really what I'm striving toward, being oppressed on one dimension has absolutely no effect on your ability to find whatever system of power you're trying to call it out and call it out. And that mm. you can do that and you don't lose legitimacy. Thank you, JK Rowling, for those books. I am going to read those books and I am going to bring up your transphobia 
each and every time I talk about you. I don't have to choose. I can have it all. I can talk yeah. about you and love that. And that does not deprive me of the responsibility to say, and here's what else is going on in the situation. We don't have to choose. Mm. Who told us we had to choose? They did. A bunch of white patriarchal figures, basically. Yeah. Both yeah, um, and. Both and. I agree. Um, also, I just wanted to, as queer people of, uh, just queer people in general, do you guys, um, I was wondering, and women especially, do you feel that, um, I often feel, let me start with this, I often feel as though I am the representative for the trans community, not just in my academia, academic life, but in my personal life, because people, like, come up to me and, like, ask me random questions and stuff, and I know, um, that it probably happens to everyone who makes themselves visible. Do you think that visibility comes at a cost that's too high or knowing that having positive experiences with groups that you disagree with helps change people's ethos about marginalized groups. Do you know what I mean? Like, do you think that we have to put ourselves on the line continuously to create effective and long-term change or is there another way? Oh, it's a hard one. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's all there's many ways. And I think one of the things that I wish I had known when I was younger is that this is not a all or nothing decision mm -hmm. that you can actually change your mind at any time, how much you're willing, how much of yourself you're willing to give to representation and how much of a boundary you need to draw around yourself for self-care and that a decision that you make at one time in your life when you might be more vulnerable professionally personally that you can change your mind you know there are times in my life where i felt it was so important to be like representing that you know it, it becomes exhausting and, and so you, it's okay to say to yourself, okay, Hey, the next couple of years, I've got a lot going on. Like my boundaries come first, me comes first. And I that, feel like for women, it's harder though, because you're expected to be nice and put on a smile. Do you know what I mean? Cause of gender roles and stuff. I think it's absolute bull crap, but like people like expect women to be nice all the time. And that makes me mad. And I'm not even a woman, you know, like, sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, you're exactly right. In fact, we know there's actually good data suggesting that, um, and the reason I know this is good is it affects people like me, uh, college professors who are women um, uh, often get downrated for not being warm enough. <laughs> and yet oh, men, men, male professors are never expected to be warm. If you're a woman, and you don't yeah. smile enough, they're like, she wasn't maternal, you know? She didn't make me feel like she was my mommy. That, that stuff definitely happens. And so I think there now, I try to just view it as strategic. I have a certain amount of energy that I'm willing to devote to uh, maybe keeping my emotions in check for the good of the cause. Mm -hmm. And I know that I've got a certain amount of points that I can spend 
on that per week, per month, whatever. And I'm willing to do it. I believe in the cause. Mm. I've seen change. I've seen that sometimes strategically. That's good strategy. But I know where to stop and where to say I've had it, you know. Mm -hmm. You have good boundaries. It took me a while to figure that out. It, yeah. it took me, it maybe took me like 20 years to figure that out, that I was no good to anybody if I felt that I was selling out. I was, wasn't good mm -hmm. to anybody. So yeah. you've got to ask yourself, what's too much? And those boundaries yeah. are everything. I kind of hit my breaking point in the last few months and was having a lot of honest conversations not just with myself and my partner and my family, but going back to myself, right? A lot of honest conversations with myself about yeah. how much time we have in one day, one week, one month. Where do I want that time to go? Um, like to your point about representation, Sky, and like what's what's too much, right? Where's the line? Mm. Um, as far as I know, I'm the first woman of color on the tenure track in the Department of Communication at our institution as far as I know, right? Um, and also being the only queer person that I'm aware of with that yeah. kind of double visibility comes um, the labor of love of mentoring extra students, which we do yeah. because we love y'all. That's where our value and our mm -hmm. joy and our meaning comes from. Um, but then it also brings with it extra requests from the department and the institution. And, and that the extra training. time, yeah. the extra time you training. give to people, they don't know. Should respect people's pronouns. All oh, this so stuff. Can you become the token queer person? Yeah. You know what's interesting? Here's here's a potential model to solve that because I think you're right. We all experience that. So I have uh, two friends who are at the university. Um, and, uh, it's a, a cis female pan married to a trans man and the trans man had their baby. And of course, all, a lot of their family had a lot of questions like, what, how is that possible? It's like, it's not that hard to figure out. You know, we know yeah. something about endocrinology and, yeah. uh, uh, and the, the cis female took hormones and actually chest fed the kids. So there was so many cool things going on. It was such a beautiful lesson of, mm -hmm. you know, transformation. But they were also like, they're getting through the pregnancy and they want to be role models because their story is fantastic. But they're mm -hmm. also just getting ready for a baby. Yeah, they're new parents. Yeah. So what they did is they set up like a little, uh, uh, like a website with like an FAQ. And That's what like, I did for my life. Like things you're allowed to ask, yeah. things we'd prefer you not ask, and with a little Google search, just leave us out of that. And it was fantastic because every time people ask, we're like, we're so glad you're interested. We actually have done our best to answer all those questions once. We gave it that. Please, we tried to make it easy for you to get all those answers. We want to be represent representative of diversity. But we also need to live our lives, you yeah. know? And I remember having a wonderful time and I almost felt really overjoyed to be learning the answers to my questions. Like, hey, when did you decide? And like, when, like, oh, and does, you know, how, are the, how are the parents about it? And to be able to enjoy the answers to that question, knowing that I wasn't burdening them. Mm -hmm. Because I was curious and I learned a lot. And I was able to gain that knowledge without 
burning them. Now, of course, they had to initially put these stuff out there, but I remember thinking, wow, that what a great model, that there's a way to do it, mm-hmm. that, you know, we're all struggling to figure out. We want to represent. We also want to live our lives and have the yeah. energy to go on. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. Well, not really curious. I know the answer to this, but uh, Leo, going back to what you're saying about the department and stuff and communication, um, we all talked about in our class how um, apparently the wi- the female faculty don't make as much as the men. Um, and that, I think, is inexcusable, especially since you were so qualified. And minority people are overqualified, and women especially. I, I read the statistic recently that men will, white men especially, will apply for a job they're only 40% qualified for, whereas minority candidates will wait till they are overqualified or like twice that. Um, I think that's just who, like, just the system of oppression that we live in. But also, like, I just wanted to let you know I put that thing on the, on the what do you call it, on the SRI. I was like, the women of the department deserve a raise. Because you do. You know, like, you do so much more than some of the male faculty, you know. Like, like you two were saying about, like, mentoring students in the in private. Like, there's certain things that I would not go to other professors for. You know what I mean? Not because you're a woman, but because... I trust you. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I think that's really important to note. And academic institutions shouldn't just like blindly you sign a check for someone who may look more qualified, but isn't doing as much work. And you know, that's only going to get worse because we know that yeah. after the pandemic, there is a slow rolling mental health tsunami. Yeah. I consider dropping out of school and I'm almost done. That has affected marginalized individuals mm-hmm. the worst and it's not just the folks who are about to go to college my sister teaches uh second graders in uh, southern california and the transformation for, of the pandemic and the losses in learning socialization uh dislocation families moving uh chaos in the household she says, you know, we're all a bit traumatized from seeing for the first time what's happening in our kids' homes. Those mm-hmm. deficits, and I said to her, I said, well, those are going to be my students in 10 years. What are we going to do? So if universities don't figure out which faculty are able to speak to folks who have had trauma, to mm-hmm. folks who have been left out, if they don't figure out how to value appropriately the work of those individuals, then their university is not going to be able to function because you people can't learn if they don't feel safe. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. And, you know, Sky, I think about the classes we've had together and the interactions we've had with yeah, students yeah. and how I feel like we all went through great pains to cultivate a space where we could feel safe, right? Especially in our health comm class, yeah, with the vaccination status. Yeah, that was insanity. Yeah, it was, right? But it, and I'm going to be honest. Um, so for our listeners and our viewers, last semester we had a senior level advanced health communication class where there were only five students enrolled at, well, after like fluctuating enrollment and whatnot. And there were five men and then me, a cisgender, yeah. queer, uh, brown girl as a faculty member. And I remember thinking this could either go really, really well or not well at all. <laughs> and yeah. thankfully, 
it went really well. And we had good, respectful, hard conversations together. And we learned a lot from and with each other. But it is an extra labor of love that goes into it, right? And this also mm-hmm. goes back to your point, Sky, about um, mentoring, right? Like, like I mentioned earlier, we mentor because we love it. We love you all. Working with you all brings us joy. It's literally the best part of our day. But also, as Lisa noted, it's oftentimes labor that is not recognized by the institution that is disproportionately done by women, women of color, and queer individuals. And it's it's our identities that bring us together, right? We feel yeah. safety and security in most instances with individuals like ourselves. And going back to your point about the pay equity, it wasn't just um, pay and equity with women and men in the department. There were also a few women in the in the department who were getting paid more than other women. So intersectionally, there were all kinds of power imbalances there. And I remember when we first found out about it. And I had just started my position at the institution two weeks in, and I found out about this. And my dad said, if you complain about this, you are going to be labeled as the angry brown girl, and then they are going to reprimand you, so you need to tread carefully. Yeah, my mom always talks about being the crazy person at the calendar, yeah. Exactly. It's, it's, it's a stereotype we all have to fight as marginalized people, I think. I think if a white man were to do that, it would be fine, but like... Yeah. I don't know. Absolutely. So I said, you know what, dad, I, I'm too old to care. I'm going in, we're burning it down. Right. And after two years, pay equity was finally reached for all of the individuals in our department, but that was two years of extra labor and work Mm -hmm. and report writing and data gathering. And then the actual stresses of going through the conversation, all Mm -hmm. of these parts of the puzzle that we don't ever talk about from an uncompensated labor perspective. Yeah. 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 And also it's like the thing that I feel like, I don't know how to even explain to some of my colleagues is, you know, um, they'll be like, well, you don't have to, uh, you know, respond. You don't have to have a meeting with all those students who want to meet with you. And I'm saying to them, Okay, often the students who meet, want to meet with you are interested in a letter of recommendation. The students who would like to meet with me and want me to put my evening on hold to Zoom with them are, um, are suicidal. Like, you cannot compare yeah. it to me. You cannot tell me, well, yes, you've been doing extra service, but that was your choice. You have a choice. When you have a student whose life is at stake, that's, you know, I, and that it's like, I, I don't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do the injustice of trying to put a dollar figure, like, and say that, like, but the inability to recognize that the type of service that marginalized individuals do is yeah. not the kind of stuff that we can say, oh, I don't have time for that. There are bodies on the line. And especially with the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. It's just as much survival for our students as it is for us. Right. Like we need these relationships too, and we benefit from them. And the asinine assumption that we should put a dollar amount on it or an hour limit time frame on it. Right. Like really. (laughs) Sometimes you just got like, I don't know. Like I think we're especially in this time where people just have to do 
what's or should do what's right instead of what's easy do you know what i mean mm -hmm. Just quote harry potter again you know what i mean like um, it's true and it's hard i think at this point yeah i think um a lot of individuals with privilege have to realize that it's not a matter of actually just adding something you have to be willing to put something of yourself on the line and actually sacrifice something and you know to be emotionally vulnerable with someone yeah yeah and i think i think that's if i look at my own life i think when i was younger it was hard for me to understand the depth of that and what that really meant it's taken me some some years and some maturity so I understand that it can be it can be still a hard message to convey. So I, I get that from the inside, but uh, you know I just have to hope that with each generation, maybe we get that message through a little bit faster, a little bit a little bit more efficiently to get to the point of progress a little bit faster. Maybe we'll always be there's friction. Let's just get a little bit faster. So I have all all kinds of thoughts, guy. Um, so. Not only was I born and raised in Texas, which is making all kinds of headlines right now because of problematic yeah, yeah. anti-abortion legislation, anti-trans legislation, and on and on and on. But I was also born and raised in a traditional Mexican Catholic household. I went to a Catholic all-girls school, a Catholic undergraduate institution. It is the name of my game until my partner and I were like, we're not getting married in the Catholic church. And then everyone in the family was like, I'm sorry, what? And you don't want kids intentionally? I'm sorry, what? Um, so here we are several years later. But the reason I bring that up as a piece of context is because what we're ultimately talking about here are competing discourses or competing dialogues mm -hmm. and conversations, right? Um, when we're thinking about um, pro-life or anti-abortion and pro-choice, whether we're thinking about my ability to practice my religion or not practice a religion at all versus someone else's. And if we look at the history of anti-abortion legislation and radicalism and clinic bombing and things of that nature, it is intimately tied to, no surprise here, Christianity, right? So when we think about how the very history of our country is intimately intertwined with Christianity and American nationalism and everything else, then we can see how we've come this far over the past several decades. I remember when I was younger, one of the activist frameworks that helped me make sense of all of this was reproductive justice, right? Yeah. And Sky, yeah, we've yeah. talked about this a ton in so many other spaces and contexts, but for those of you who are listening who haven't heard of it, um, reproductive justice as a framework, a movement, a set of ideologies and practices helps us move past the pro-life, anti-abortion, pro-choice pro binary, right? To really mm -hmm. think about reproductive health, access, and justice across the lifespan. And it's not just for cisgender women either, right? Um, several, several of our foundational reproductive justice activists and mothers were Black women, right? And we need to acknowledge that it is a movement originally created by Black women for Black women because of the racism that was experienced in pro-choice feminist circles historically, right? So if we're thinking about Women's History Month and which voices and histories are talked about, the reproductive justice one, and I've studied this in news spaces, it does not get the same amount of airwaves or coverage yeah. the way pro-life, anti-abortion, pro-choice discourses do. And, and it's because it's a deeper critique, because it's not just pro-choice. It's like, 
what is the system through which your ability to control your body depends on your race and your class? Like, wait a second, there's more going on here than makes it's me- It's like intersectional- It is. Yeah. It's yeah. intersectionality in a nutshell, my friends. Like mm. the reproductive justice activists historically not only critiqued racism and exclusionary practices and the feminist movement and the women's movement, they also were saying it's not just about abortion. We need um, maternal health care, prenatal care, postnatal care. We need better family leave policies yeah. for all parents of all gender identities. And reproductive justice makes a very intentional effort and provides a very intentional space for queer, BIPOC, trans bodies to also get the very real health care access and needs and support that they need to. It kind of like really turns the whole pro-life, yeah. pro-choice binary on its head, right? Because it yeah. enlarges it mm -hmm. full fold. I mean, because it really goes to the heart of who is even allowed to make certain decisions? Who is even allowed to have a, to even articulate something as a choice? Yeah, my sister always says like, no uterus, no opinion. And I'm like, honestly, kind of. And you know, my, my sense is that, Sky, it's interesting because you know, the outrage that you were expressing, you know, it is amazing how little has changed mm -hmm. in, in the, you know, I first became an activist around um, reproductive justice in the uh, mid-1990s. Okay, before it was born. Clinic defense and getting women in and out and... Yeah. Oh wow! The amount, the amount that has not changed, uh, like literally, you could have just pressed pause, and I, the, I, I never would have thought yeah. that we would be where we are. Now, I, I was sure that we were on the right track, and for a while it seemed like we were. Pro-choice became kind of mainstream. Yeah. Then, then all this stuff about late-term abortions and you know, and like they, like all these side paths back into control and oppression. And it's literally all the same people who are trying to keep trans youth from, from medical care. It's the same people. It's the same fight. It's never changed. They do not want certain people to have control over their bodies. Who are you, your guys' personal heroes that are women? Um, I, I came up with one, a Utah-specific one that I mm. only found out about recently. Hold on, I put it on. I put it on my website. It was okay. Judy, remind me. The oh, okay, I see her. Doctor Martha Hughes Cannon, the first female state senator in Utah. And she was a doctor when no one was allowed to. First head of the health department. Pardon? Also first head of the health department. First head of the oh, health wow. department. Oh, wow. Okay. That's awesome. Quite. And I heard about her on like a, I saw there was a documentary about her and just one of those like, you know, and she was a polygamous wife. Um, She what? was married to a polygamist. So very interesting background, but someone who became a physician at a time when women becoming physicians was not a thing. And she just barreled forward 
and was an incredible uh, figure here and that was a, a big supporter of um, equal voting rights and I think is a great example of someone whose biographical history, you know, they've got the polygamy, they've got this, they, that, and you're like, wow, progress comes from strange places. And let us all just decide that we want progress. Like, whoever you are, if, if you're going you. yeah. in the right direction, come on, let's do it. Jump on the bandwagon, basically, yeah. I love that. Wow. I did not know about this individual. Now I'm going to spend some time researching them later. I love that. Um, mine is not specific to Utah at all. It's actually my grandma. And Sky, we might have talked about her at some point in the past. Um, but I didn't have to look too far when I was younger to see what it meant to be a powerful woman, um, not only ancestrally, but also like in that moment. So I mentioned earlier that my family was from the U.S.-Mexico border in Texas. And when the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed in 1848 and the American Southwest became America when it used to be Mexican mm -hmm. land, right? Um, that's when my family essentially became American citizens. And they always used to tell me stories of how my great, great, great grandmas would fight against um, the colonizers to keep their land, how they'd go out on their horses with all their guns and how like this kind of spirit was really embedded in me from a young age. So my grandma um, lived with us my entire life, which was one of the greatest blessings of my life because I got to see her every day. And my grandma was a single mother of 13 children. So let me explain this. Um, she had eight children biologically and then five stepchildren from her second marriage. They were my step-grandpa's kids from his previous marriage that she still treated like her own. She was a survivor of intimate partner domestic violence. And when she had had enough of it with both my grandpa and then her second marriage, she divorced both of them and was a single mother raising all of them while working multiple jobs without a degree and on and on, right? It's very much a kind of um, mm -hmm. story that I think many women of color are accustomed to growing up with and having heard, but she had this attitude and spirit about her that was always about not just doing things for yourself, but about giving back to the community as well. And I'm over here thinking like, how could she think that or be like that when she was constantly exhausted constantly working, constantly trying to do what she could to provide for all of the children. Um, but then it clicked to me that the spirit of giving back was really kind of what gave her the power to keep going every day. So I remember when I was younger, my grandma and my mom would both tell me like, you getting a PhD is not for yourself. It is for you to give back to your students and to your community and to make the world a better place for everyone involved. And this is also going back to the point I made earlier about um, mentorship and community activism, right? Like this is the, I think the heartbeat of so much of our work. And when things get tiring because they do, my friends, that's always kind of the number one theme that brings me back to me, like brings me back to it and recenters me, right? Like we're making the world a better place in the midst of all the shenanigans we're seeing now, right? And by working together, hopefully we'll, we'll make the world a little brighter. Like that's what I tell myself when I'm ready to set everything on fire. <laughs> mm -hmm.
Yeah, I think my uh, personal hero is probably my twin sister or uh, my grandma, my great-grandma. I don't, I don't really know her very well, but um, it, it's definitely my sister. But, like, also there's, like, this rich history of the women in my family being educated and doing all this crazy stuff. Um, my great-grandmother on my dad's side, my dad's mom's mom, she re- translated the entirety of the Talmud and the Torah into Farsi so that the women of the congregation could speak could like read and have something to teach their children with. Do you know what I mean? Whoa. That's cool. Like I'm Jewish by uh yeah. And that was something that's really cool. And we still have a copy of her C doer, so that's pretty cool in our house. But yeah. That's something that I can tie my name to and say, like, hey, like that's that's someone who I was related to, you know, and that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. That yeah, and she cool. um she was a relatively religious pretty religious Jew in a household a very secular Jew. So mm-hmm. that's something I really admired about her too. She was very devout. And my dad tells stories about how he would like turn off the lights and she'd have to go turn them back on because before timers existed or whatever and like to prank her or whatever. But she was so steadfast in her beliefs that she was willing to do something that was against, like not against, but like that was different than her husband and her grandchildren, you know? Mm-hmm. Like she was more devout and that's something I draw inspiration from. As a practicing Jew, as the one practicing Jew in my entire family, you know? So, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, and I think it just shows that it is not the, you know, uh, strictness of a tradition that you follow or the throwing off of the strictures. It's the ability and the autonomy to make a choice. Uh-huh. I totally agree. I 100% agree with you. I got into an argument with one of my relatives about like whether or not like people like there's a lot of islamophobia within the jewish faith and vice versa Mm -hmm. and i think um i think less so in this generation but um someone i was having a conversation with my uncle about this but um actually i won't say his name i I was having a conversation with a family member about this and we were talking about how some people who are feminists and rightfully so feminism is about the right to choose you know like there are feminist women who feel like wearing a hijab makes them feel more in contact with Allah or God. And I think that's perfectly normal, fine, whatever. Like, everyone's entitled to their own choice. She can still be a feminist just because she, quote-unquote, wears something that has been used to oppress people. That's not what it is about. Um, especially in Afghanistan. Sorry, I pronounce things in the Farsi way. But um, in Afghanistan, with the whole um, withdrawing of troops and support in the Taliban, the thing is, it doesn't, like, it's not like an evil thing to want to wear a hijab if you feel like it makes you closer to God, you know? It's it's about what you want to do. It's about yeah. your choice in the matter, you know? Yeah. And it's very white Western standards mm-hmm. imposed upon a different cultural group, right? Which is problematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think people see covering themselves up as something that's eastern and there's a lot of ethnocentrism in that like people are like why would you do that like my god doesn't make me cover up but he does in a different way you know what i mean like i think like it's all the same god in my opinion do you know what i mean but like um we just choose like i think just in general like i think that like god i'm not incredibly religious but i think that god is a like is a merciful person or deity whatever and I think that, like, when humanity tries to interpret the books or whatever, I think that's when it gets muddled. It's like a game of telephone. Like, one person 
has received the information from God, but then it goes downward and like, it's like Game of Telephone. You yeah, know it's I mean? interesting. Like I, I was there. actually just thinking about that metaphor, the Game of Telephone, like a, a day or so ago. And I was like, why didn't anybody ever look at like the books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, mm-hmm. and be like, wait a second, this is just one big game of telephone. Like, yeah, I, I heard that yeah. Jesus, I heard that I did this. Well, I said, and I'm like, wait, you told who? And you told her? Oh, but oh, no wonder we have four books. It's just a long game of telephone. Same thing in, same thing in Judaism. Like, the only thing we are taught as Reformed Jews that came from God, or just in general, that came from God is the Torah. You know what I mean? Like the Ten Commandments from the Torah, right? But then there's this whole, whole, like, whole, like, study of Jewish law, the Talmud, that is based on that, but, like, like, you're not supposed to eat pork because your body's holy, right? So, like, that's not what God said. That's the game of telephone. Do you know what I mean? In my opinion, at least. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's literally interpreting and I something guess, for you know, somebody who didn't even have the direct passage. You know and I mean? to some degree, like, it's kind of reassuring to know that, like, humans yeah. have been doing this forever. Like, yeah. humans yeah. have been doing this forever. We are not living through anything unique. We just have to understand that humans tend to make the same mistakes over and over again. And, and probably the central mistake is thinking that what's best for me is going to be what's best for you. And like, it all comes down to that. Like, if we could just yeah. figure that out, like, go ahead. You do you. Yeah. I'm going to do me. <laughs> yeah, from an interfaith perspective, I was actually involved in the Interfaith Council at UVU. We talked about these guardrails that we had, and we're not treating people like we want to be treated. We're treating them how they want to be treated. That's something that we should teach in school, not like, yeah. oh, the golden rule. No, like, how I want to be treated could be different than somebody else. You know what I mean? Like, it's just... It just is what it is. You yeah. Know? So do you guys have any last thoughts or want to answer anything I didn't ask you or like things you want to plug? Um, I do have a shameless plug um, for any of our viewers or listeners who are in the Salt Lake area, broadly defined. Um, I'm a co-organizer for the Salt Lake area queer climbing organization. We have weekly climbing meetups. We also have outdoor hiking events. Um, We have programs in place to help mitigate access issues to gear, the great outdoors. Um, So yeah, if you are interested in hiking, rock climbing, and even if you have zero experience with any of that, it doesn't matter. Look us up on Instagram. Um, We are S-L-A-Q Climbers. Our acronym is SLAQ, S-L-A-Q-C. And yeah, we would love to see you at some of our events. It really has been... Uh, my queer home away from home here in Salt Lake City. Yeah, yeah. And at our very first event, which was our Pride Month event last summer, we had almost 70 queer climbers from the community oh, of all. Wow. Yeah, so oh, many I'll of to, us. I'll have to make the trip out uh, once I'm in a little better shape and not so asthmatic. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. so asthmatic. I would love yeah. for you and everyone else to come join. We also have um, shared meetups with Color the Wasatch which is our sibling BIPOC climbing group. So in the spirit of intersectionality, we oftentimes join forces for mutual gear aid and just a good time. So it's it's a home away from home for all of our queer and BIPOC community members. And I, uh, I am doing a lot of work right now trying to understand what it means to feel safe and where individuals with different forms of marginalization 
what is it to feel safe? What are the cues of safety that we need in our everyday life to allow us to turn off that buzz of uncertainty and wariness and fully engage with the moment? And I feel like safety is one of those things we all kind of know what we mean when we talk about it, but I'm trying to find a way to capture it, to measure it, to find a way to identify where it's lacking and how we can increase it. And so uh, I'm going to be doing a lot of projects this summer trying to unpack this notion of social safety and where queer people experience it. So if you are interested in those topics, just look up Lisa Diamond, University of Utah, and send me an email. Very cool. cool. We're, we're actually doing, do you want to plug the, the study we're doing, Leah? Oh, yeah. So hopefully if all of the funding works out well, um, Sky is going to be one of our research assistants where we are going to look at menstruation experiences and menstruation in slash justice on college campuses. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there's a couple of people around UVU who are like talking to me about like getting free access to uh, like sanitation supplies for menstruation. And I was like, that's actually a great idea. Like I wasn't in positions of like authority or whatever. So I was like, I will pass that along, you know? Yeah. And it's how, and how menstruation necessities should be in all restrooms, right? Mm -hmm. For all yeah, individuals. Who goes into the men's restroom. It's a little hard sometimes, you know? Yeah. It's amazing to me when I ever go through airports and I, and I see that they have like a sharps container. I'm like, great. You're doing a great job with diabetics. How about yeah. half of the uteruses on the planet? Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, right. Yeah. Thank you guys again for letting me be a part of this, your token trans man of the uh, chat, but it was this really great. This was fantastic. Um, this was so much fun. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. I look forward to talking to you both again, hopefully soon. But yeah. Thanks, both of you. Thanks, y'all. Yeah. Thank you.